0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: Okay, so uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I'm not going to talk about um, iconography and idolatry, uh, although if you want to ask questions about that, I'm happy to say something about it. But I want to talk about the family as seen through film, I want to back up a little bit, though, uh, and, and talk a little bit more about film as an art form. Um, I'm going to be quoting from at various points, and in fact, my attention to this first film that we're going to watch, The Philadelphia Story, um, a film I think I first watched uh, seriously in the late 1980s, but um, it's... Um, It's been grouped uh, among a series of about 10 to 12 films that have come to be known as comedies of remarriage, which run from the early 30s up into the early 40s, roughly, sometimes later. This is a 1940, so it's pretty late in in that group of films. Uh, And it was, um, the person who came up with this term is Stanley Cavell, philosopher uh, at Harvard for many years, uh, what's known as an ordinary language philosopher, so... His view was that um, by reflecting upon ordinary language and using ordinary language in philosophy as opposed to highly technical language, uh, we could make progress in thinking about the most important issues. And Cavell thought uh, that films bore important, particularly American films, bore important philosophical import. Um, and so he wrote a lot about film. Um, and he thought of film and jazz reasonably as the two great American art forms, right? Film certainly has uh, European roots as well, uh, but American film pretty much dominates, uh, and, and jazz is certainly a distinctively American uh, art form. These two arts, uh, jazz and film, are also arts that uh, mediate between high and low. Um, that their art forms that, um, that take on, particularly in film, can take on important issues but communicate them to a mass audience. So they mediate between the high and the low, which I think rightly Cavell thought was something that was really important in a democracy, Right, that you have art forms that could mediate between high and low. Uh, the tendency in the 20th century, and this continues into our own century, has been for these to split off so that a high art becomes for intellectuals, and then you have popular art, which doesn't have much to do with the sort of deeper issues that, uh, that intellectuals, at least in previous generations, took to be important. So thinking about film in this way as a distinctive art form that mediates between high and low, And operates in the realm of ordinary language, where I mean Cavell's asked at one point in an interview, well, why do you think that um, film has philosophical importance? And he says, well, it, it it just does. What's the proof? Well, if you start watching films with groups of people and talking about them, you suddenly find that you're talking about very important issues in a way that the film draws out of you as a viewer and as someone reflecting upon what you've seen. So he thought that it didn't need any other proof than that, the fact that if you, if you take film seriously, they reward rewatching, and they reward and prompt important conversations about the most important human things. So I got interested in, um, I mean I've always been sort of interested in film and, and in television too, uh, and I started writing about this uh, back in um, in the late 90s when, after I'd gotten tenure at Boston College and had a sabbatical at Notre Dame and wrote a book on Aquinas' ethics, and for the first time since maybe I was an undergrad, I had like four months free with nothing to do. And, and that was at once exciting, and also, I didn't know what to do. So, uh, and all, all I knew what to do at that point uh, was write. So... I had ideas about, um, about film and TV and started writing some short essays and circulated it to some friends who said, you know, Hibbs, this isn't awful. And so I thought, well, that's, <laughs> these are friends. They're honest with me, right? They tell me, they tell me the truth. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll keep working on it. So I kept working on it. I came up with this draft of a book called Shows About Nothing, which was inspired by the tagline for Seinfeld, and there's a long chapter in Seinfeld which tells you how many hours I've wasted watching Seinfeld, actually enjoying enjoying Seinfeld quite a bit. Um, And I was looking to publish the book and um, talked with uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who was then at Duke, and he and McIntyre had published a book of mine through a Notre Dame series that they edited uh, a few years earlier. And Stanley put me in touch with somebody at an academic press who was interested in it. But then they came back and they said, well, what we want you to do... With this, with this manuscript, is to go back and look at all the cultural theory stuff and connect your book up with that. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to do that. I mean, I was—I'm actually interested in some of the culture. I'm interested in some of the cultural theory stuff, but I wanted to write a book. Uh, and I was—I was thinking in terms of Cavell, without uh, thinking of him uh, directly. But I wanted to write a book in ordinary English hopefully clear, lucid English, that would communicate to the sort of students I had at Boston College, who were quite bright. We had over 300 philosophy majors there in the department at that point, which is a huge number. And and they were interested in questions, but uh, even back then, when they left our classroom, they were immersed in a world of image and sound. And that's even more true today, right? because of the prevalence of screens. So I wanted to write a book that college students or college-educated people who had had maybe a philosophy class and were interested in what was going on in the culture, they could read it and be interested in it. And part of my assumption was that films and TV shows themselves have implicit assumptions or implications about important questions, right? That every—whether the authors intend it or not, every film, every TV series— has assumptions about what's important in human life, by which I mean what you should laugh at and what you shouldn't. That's a very concrete example, so comedies and even tragedies or dramas uh, have standards for what you can laugh at and what you can't. Seinfeld was known for expanding the standards of what you could find humorous. It was also known, I think, as being politically pretty even-handed. When it skewered things, it skewered both left and right, uh, and so and that's different, of course, from a lot of Hollywood productions, which would have us only laugh at weird gun-toting Christians, snake handlers from some remote village in Texas.
0: <laughs>
1: they also have implicit assumptions or implications for what counts as success, what counts as failure, right? How do you round off an episode? How do you round off a story? Right? The old sitcoms, whatever craziness happened during them, they always ended with husband and wife hugging. I love Lucy. Ricky loves Lucy. All is right in the world, or at least in America. Later sitcoms, Seinfeld in particular, right? Seinfeld had the, the master of the art, of the unhappy but funny ending, right, where something horrible is happening to one or more of the characters at the very end, and we find this humorous. We also have shifts from who, which sorts of characters we're sympathizing with. So one of the things I was trying to trace in the book was a a prevalence of nihilistic storylines uh, beginning in the 70s and increasing up in at least into the 90s when I was writing the book. So the, the book is really about the rise of nihilistic stories in, uh, in American culture. And if you want to figure, if you want examples of this, just watch the two versions of Cape Fear, one from 1962, one from 1991, where in the first one, uh, the, the family that is the victim of this ex-con is treated in sympathetic ways and it's clear that the ex-con is a malevolent evil person whom we're supposed to fear and in some sense judge. In the 1991 Scorsese version, actually I had a very critical part, uh, discussion of this in my book and Mitch Muncy who edited the book for Spence Publishing um, told me that they got a letter from Scorsese, uh, Scorsese's people complaining that I had slandered. Scorsese, like, well, he's like, this, is, this is a movie review, you know? This is what you do. Um, but in, in the later film, um, the family is a mess. They're not sympathetic. The bad guy is seen as somebody who's, sort of, who's kind of beyond good and evil, sees through conventional moral codes, and his energy sort of drives the film. Right? That same year, 91, this was mentioned yesterday, Silence of the Lambs wins Best Picture. Right with Hannibal Lecter as the uh, the happy cannibal, more brilliant, more cultured than anyone else in the film. So I've traced that. I've also done lectures tracing uh, abortion in film, and you can see you can see which is sort of the subtitle of that is how did we get from safe, legal, and rare to shout your abortion? Right, uh, that's a huge culture change on the left, a huge culture change on the left. Um, so, and I think there are nihilistic elements there as well, but this is a happier topic today, at least on the whole, to talk about the family. We could do a very negative set of films about the, about the family. Uh, I wanna begin by uh, reading up a, a passage before I show some, and I'm gonna show some clips from at least three films, maybe four. Uh, I wanna show a couple clips from the Philadelphia story. I want to show a couple clips from uh, a, a devastatingly depressing but very insightful film called The Ice Storm. And then I want to show something from Lord of the Rings and maybe Tree of Life if we get... They're short. They're all short. We're not going to show the whole of Tree of Life. But I want to, I want to, begin, I want to begin with a passage from Bloom and then some comments from Cavell, which are very different. So this is a passage from... And I've got this on my phone, sorry. Um, this is a passage from... Bloom's Closing in the American Mind, right, which is early to mid-'80s. And I think one of the best, he's not real good generally on pop culture or music. I don't think. Because um, <laughs> he really didn't know pop culture or pop music. He's just got some throwaway lines about Mick Jagger and other things. Um, but he is pretty good. There's this chapter called Relationships yeah. in uh, Closing the American Mind, which I think is actually... It's the best um, observational uh, chapter in the book. And this he's writing in early to mid-80s, right? And he goes back to the social contract as a kind of founding modern political theory. You could also cite the Declaration of Independence, right, as a a declaration that at certain moments we can break off very important historical relationships. And here's what he says about relationships. The aptest description I can find for the state of student souls is the psychology of separateness. This continual shifting of the sands in our desert, separation from places, persons, and beliefs, produces the psychic state of nature where reserve and timidity are the prevailing dispositions. We are social solitaries. And then he goes on to talk about divorce. Divorce in America is the most palpable indication that people are not made to live together and that although they want and need to create a general will, referencing Rousseau there, out of particular wills, those particular wills constantly reassert themselves in the absence of a common good, the disintegration of society into particular wills is inevitable. So this psychology of separateness and divorce as a a kind of, in one sense, a symptom, but also as a symbol for Bloom of this psychology of separateness and of isolated wills attempting to find some way to get together and stay together. I think, actually, Seinfeld is, um, uh, on relationships, plays this out better than anything Bloom could have. It's almost like if Bloom could have invented a sitcom, he certainly wouldn't have invented Seinfeld. But if he could have, although... It's, uh, it's got—the um, uh, humor has a lot of Jewish roots in it, uh, 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 and he might have gotten close to it. But, you know, on Seinfeld, relationships are, um, are always temporary, and their breakups are always arbit- for arbitrary reasons, right? And it's because—and and marriage is really impossible, right? So George is the one who gets closest to marriage. He's the most miserable because he's close to marriage, right? Marriage is something that makes, that makes you absolutely miserable. You end up like Jerry or George's parents, which is absolutely insane uh, if you get married. And breakups are always over something, you know, like someone not writing an exclamation point, some woman who has man hands, all these, <laughs> all these crazy things. But it, 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 it reflects the fact that uh, on that sitcom, this is not a, contemporary America is not a world where people can really connect at a deep level so as to imagine and commit two lives together over a long period, right? It's actually a perfect reflection of what Bloom is talking about. But here's the but, uh, and the but, co- there, there are probably a number of other things that could be said there, but I'm gonna focus on Cavell. So Cavell identifies these comedies of remarriage, where there's actually been a divorce, and then people get remarried. That's weird. Right? But Cavell thinks that's actually, if he were to read Bloom, he would say no. This is actually a better reflection of America. Is the possibility of remarriage, which is what? Well, for Cavell, it is. Um, it, so these are comedies where, first of all, the heroine takes plays a central role in in the in in the remarriage. Um. The man does too, but the heroine is key. And unlike in most comedies where you have marriages at the end, Shakespearean comedies, and the whole job of the plot is to get the couple together, right, over all sorts of obstacles, here the job is to get them back together so that they reaffirm a commitment. And what's crucial about this for Cavell is... Two things, really, that have to go on. One is that at least one of the characters, if not both of the couple, has to come to a deeper appreciation of human frailty and weakness and failure. That's that's absolutely crucial here. She has to come to a deeper realization uh, and appreciation of his human frailty. Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. The second thing is that they reaffirm the marriage with a greater sense of adventure about the relationship and the marriage. That it's not just about making the, the vow or the commitment, it's about the embracing the risk and adventure of whatever may come. Which you could say, is actually implicit in the original vow, right? But most people don't think of it that way, right? Even if they're saying words for better and for worse in sickness and in health. So it's, it's, it's because they have internally embraced something about the commitment as an adventure and the risk involved in that. So... That's different We could talk about how that's different from what Bloom is, is talking about. It's the, it's the um, you might say that uh, Bloom is focusing on the beginning of the Declaration and Cavell's focusing on the end, right? Where we mu- mutually pledge each to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, right? The very last line of the Declaration. So that there's, having, having broken something off this is, in the Declaration, it's different, right? Because we're breaking off with another nation and reaffirming. Cavell sees this in the comedies of remarriage. You're actually reaffirming with the same person whom you have broken off with, right? So there's a healing or a restoration. Okay, so Philadelphia story. 1940, as I mentioned, as some of you were coming in, this saved Catherine Hepburn's career. It's hard to believe. she had a bunch of bombs. She got this. So there is a wedding about to happen in Philadelphia, Which we are told of one at one point is of national significance, and certainly the city of Philadelphia is of national significance, right? So um, it's of national significance. So the fact, and this is a this is an affluent socialite family, Catherine Hepburn, who has divorced C.K. Dexter Haven. There's a name (laughs) uh, because he drank too much. And he's sort of slovenly, although he looks pretty good there. He doesn't look slovenly. <laughs> um, she's divorced him. She's marrying nouveau riche guy who's up and coming, who's boring as dirt, <clears throat> a nice guy. A boring, <laughs> <laughs> boring <as good. clears throat> Jimmy Stewart here, Mike Connor. Mr. Kana, as Catherine Hepburn keeps calling him, <laughs> uh, is, uh, is a, fancies himself a writer. He's actually written a book of poetry, which the Catherine Hepburn character goes to her local library at one point to read. Um, he's a writer who can't make money as a writer, so he's working for Spy Magazine, which is a tabloid magazine that tries to get dirt on socialites, right? So he and the woman he's dating are sent as reporters to cover this wedding. So I, I hope you, uh, you will not be offended uh, because I've already given away the conclusion of this if we're calling it a comedy of remarriage, right? So I'm going to show some clips that actually uh, give away important things about the plot. Um, yeah, I think that's all we need to know for the moment. What happens over the course of the plot is that, um, well, let me just play this first clip. This is, so, so and Cary and Grant is not supposed to be at the wedding. He's not supposed to be there, but he happens to have a friend who's connected to Spy Magazine. He shows up at the office of Spy Magazine and says, I'll get you, I'll get your reporters in. So he shows up. Spy Magazine is let in in part because they're threatening to do a story about Catherine Hepburn's very wealthy father, who is something of a philanderer. They're going to tell some story about him fooling around, uh, committing adultery on the side, and the family has to kind of cover for him. So here's a, let me play this clip and then we'll talk a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to go to the very end. Um, So what happens in between is that she gets drunk and, um, and ends up spending the evening, although not in the language we would use, spending the night with. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't have sex with, but she ends up spending the evening with Jimmy Stewart, Mike Conner, right? And, um, and they, they sort of initially had scorn for one another. He, for these rich... So, I mean, he's a writer. right? He's not taking these rich, shallow socialites seriously. She doesn't take him seriously because he's a writer. But then she goes and reads his poetry and is actually moved by it. So they spend the evening together talking and kissing, and she wakes up the next morning not knowing what happened. It turns out nothing happened, but she has to go through a question period with him in front of her fiancé asking, um, how did I end up in my bed? Uh, what happened? And and then she's, at, she's sort of asking, well, did anything more happen? And he said, well... No, you were intoxicated, and for gentlemen, there are rules about such things. And so she learns that nothing has happened, much to her relief, but her fiancé is, of course, scandalized by this. They end up breaking things off, and then we have this at the very end. Okay, so that, sorry, I gave away the ending, but you knew it was coming. It's a it's a great it's a great comedy. It's really bears watching and rewatching. Great scene uh, and notice there that um, she has been humbled and humanized by being put in the position that she had put her husband in so often of uh, with his own drinking. So there's this capacity to come back together, and the happy ending is the recognition of one's own frailty. And a willingness to actually extend generosity to one spouse, right? And, and his or her failings, and then an ability at a deeper level to reaffirm the marriage. Okay, that's one model. Talk about the ice storm, which is a very different.
0: Nineteen
1: ninety-seven. Good morning, ladies
0: and gentlemen. They're Spider-Man. <laughs>
1: early Toby McGuire, Katie Holmes, an early Katie Holmes is actually, a young Katie no, Holmes, not an early. is also Katie. in <laughs> 1997 set in New Canaan, Connecticut. Oh, that's right to me. There you go. Okay. <laughs> New Canaan, Connecticut, which is also of national significance, right? As a as a place name. New Canaan it's it's the American dream, the American paradise. But in this case, it's the American dream turned nightmare, 1973, Thanksgiving. And there is an ice storm that gradually takes over the town of New Canaan, Connecticut, and has a very tragic result for one character, in which I'm not gonna show any of that. Um, but the ice in this film is also symbolic. There's a kind of Shakespearean. Symbolism to the weather where nature gives us an insight into the human condition. Because what the ice symbolizes is the frozen souls, right? And remember for Dante, right, at the pit of hell, it's not fire, it's ice. The frozen passions and souls of the main characters. Great stars in this. Kevin Klein. Sigourney Weaver, Joan Allen, uh, Kevin Kline, and Sigourney. It focuses on two families. Kevin Kline and Sigourney Weaver are parents of separate families, but having an affair. There's a scene I won't show in here, but where they're seen. I think there are two, two, maybe three scenes of sexual relation, sexual intercourse in the film. There's no nudity, so far as I remember, and I'm certainly not showing anything here. But what's what's significant about the three sexual encounters is that they're all completely mechanical and devoid of passion and human emotion, right? It's what um, Walker Percy in Lancelot, right? The great quest for evil book, I think it's next to the movie goer, his best novel, uh, is, um, says, right, once you've, reduced the human element or eliminated the human element out of sexuality it's just cells touching cells it's just mechanical interactions this film is a really good illustration of sex reduced to mechanical interactions. so there's nothing erotic in the classic sense or even in the modern sense about the sexuality that's going on here Um, the other way in addition to the ice that this film gives us a perspective as viewers that transcends the perspective of the characters. This is important, right, about a film, because especially if you're thinking, as I have done in my writing about this stuff, about nihilism in film, so there there can be nihilism in a film that need not be experienced by the viewers as nihilistic if the filmmaker gives us a perspective that the characters lack. Right? Does that make sense? So the characters have no in this book except maybe Toby Maguire. Why? Because he's reading the Fantastic Four. That's why. The Fantastic Four and the commentary that it provides in the film, plus the ice, if we interpret the ice rightly, give the viewers a perspective on the action of the characters that the characters lack. Right? So our perspective is not their perspective. So he's on the train coming back from New York City where he's studying in a boarding school, coming home for Thanksgiving. This is the opening of this. Yeah, so the, the Fantastic Four, the family. I'm not sure what exactly we're to make of the void part, but um, as connected with the family. But clearly, that that part about the more damage you can do without knowing that you're doing it, the the parents in this film are doing huge damage to their children, without knowing that they're doing it because their souls have become so devoid of human and moral sensibility. Let me um, let me play a couple other clips here quickly. <laughs> Yeah, so you've got a therapeutic reverend on the make here. um, And uh, I think two things about this. I was going to show another clip, but I'll just explain what happens. But um, I mean, the the pop psychology, right, that has replaced religion and and therapy that has replaced religion and a um, representative of that who's clearly, after meeting this woman for two minutes, is trying to seduce her. The really interesting thing is, the other interesting thing that's going on, is that she sees her daughter riding a bike. Now, he uses that to make a sexual illusion, right, at the very end, a kind of proposition. They say you never forget how. Um, But she's thinking, and, and this happens, we'll see this later when she talks to her daughter, she's thinking of her own lost innocence of her childhood, being free to ride on a bike. The next scene is of the daughter going to a store and shoplifting. Then there's a scene later where the mother, Joan Allen, hops on the bike and goes to a pharmacy and shoplifts and is caught. And you're left wondering, these are extremely well. New Canaan, Connecticut is not a poor community. It, these are very wealthy, affluent Americans. Why is it, and this is the the sort of pointlessness of evil, of almost, it's like stealing the pears, right? Why did I do it? In this case, she's not with anyone, but she has a compulsion to do something that she knows she ought not to do, and there's no need to do it, right? So we're presented with examples of seemingly pointless commissions of evil that bring about and are for the sake of no apparent good. Because the souls have become so devastated and lacking in any human connection or moral sensibility. And when that happens in the... So you've got... I mean, this is a... These are families that are direct results of the sexual revolution. The big thing that's happening this Thanksgiving weekend, and it's come from L.A., to the east coast so it's a big deal is a key party where the parents all go to a party and the women put their keys in a bowl and at the end of the night the men walk up and pick a set of keys and that's the woman they go home with that's what they're all experimenting with so you're, you all look really depressed and devastated right now, as you should. <laughs> this is a devastating film, but I think it is, it operates in a way that lets us see this is the direct result of the sexual revolution, right? is that you have souls that, where sex itself has become reduced to cells interacting with cells. Right? Um, Wendell Berry, but, so when I taught this at, at Boston College, you'll, this might make you depressed about it, but I had, I had a kid who lived near there in class. Um, and I, I had, uh, when I first taught this course at BC, there's this old great debating hall that was shaped like this, but deep, is was built in the 1870s. And I told the, uh, the department chair that I would let the class get as big as they wanted if, um, if they would let me have this debating hall because it's never more than five rows deep so, you could have 100 students in there, and if anyone spoke, you could actually see the person speak. I wasn't going to do a lecture hall that was like this. So, I would have students back. I mean, I would never show movies like I did back in the late 90s on campus. Um, we watched Pulp Fiction, we watched this. And I had the students watch these films before they came into class. We had a Sunday night screening. And then I had a text that I would match with it. So, we, we read Good Man is Hard to Find with Pulp Fiction. We read Wendell Berry's Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community with this film. And I came into class on a Monday after they watched this. And, um, you know, you've got 100 and some kids. you got to be pumped up to perform. And I'm, I'm telling stupid jokes at the beginning like I always do, kind of a warm-up act. Nobody's laughing. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in bad shape here. So no, nobody's laughing. Everybody looked like you guys did just until I, until I shifted the topic. And so I said, well, what's wrong? I thought something had happened on campus like the night before that I was unaware of. And this one kid who was from near New Canaan, Connecticut, whom I'd had in class before, so he was brave enough, and he said to me, he said, well, you know those other films like Pulp Fiction? He said, those were interesting. And then he said, this is one of my greatest moments of teaching ever. He said, those people could be me. And I thought, wow. And, they, and the students had at the end of that class, they gathered together. They had the most frank conversation I had ever heard them have about sexual mores on campus, which you know, was the, the early stages of what Tom Wolfe would call hooking up, right? where they go out in packs, and it's like, it's like a key party in a way, right? without keys. And you drink too much, and then you wake up the next morning, and you try to put together your evening. Right? And this is what college campuses are often uh, very much about. So uh, they had the most frank conversation about that, uh, that I had ever heard at Boston College in the time I was there and about the problems of that culture, right? Uh, and they didn't, they didn't know, it was great because they didn't know what to do with Barry. They didn't know whether he was a conservative or a liberal and that was, actually worked really well. And of course, Barry has a strong argument there that the pornographer who tries to, sh- who alleges to, to show us more actually can't show what's most important which is the, the joining of souls, right? And so what you get here is a depiction of the joining of soulless bodies in the ice storm. Okay, let me, uh, I know I'm running about to, oh, no, I've got, this thing's a little bit fast, right? So um, this one's accurate though. Uh, let me show this clip from, uh, from Lord of the Rings. So this is Arwen's vision. This is something that Peter Jackson added that's not in the book. And Arwen is headed off to the Undying Lands. She's been told by her father Elrond that if she stays with Aragorn, he will die and she will have nothing but sorrow and death and emptiness. Great scene. This is not in the book. This is part of the plot. Uh, and uh, <laughs> what's that? Oh, I have a question already.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> Just settle down. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get your turn. Um, so, I, I mean, I find this interesting in lots of lots of ways, but uh, I, I, I think that what's most interesting about it culturally is um, this is not a romantic comedy, right? But if you think about our romantic comedies, and this goes all the way back uh, to, um, to the Katherine Hepburn days in the 30s and 40s, the vast majority of them are, uh, they're all about, as Cavell says, uh, getting the couple together, right? Overcoming obstacles to get the couple together. Uh, and the couple co- has to come to a recognition that despite what they previously thought or what other people were telling them, they do belong together, despite whatever appearances might be to the contrary, right? They recognize in one another a fit, a belongingness, and a willingness to stay together. What's striking about that is how rarely that involves, that recognition involves in either of the potential spouse's an insight that this is the person I want to have children with, mm-hmm. and yet I think, at least in previous generations, uh, that, and perhaps in the current generation as well, that that recognition is almost always there. That that is to say that falling in love involves, at some point, something like, yeah, I'd like to have children with this person. Or it would be good if we had children. Arwen's motivation here is not the royal, really attractive Aragorn that she's going to get to spend time with. Her, although all those are parts of her attraction, what leads her to make the sacrifice that she makes is the vision of the child. And by the way, that's a perfect scene for what I was talking about in Hitchcock where you have, you have no dialogue and you just have faces looking at faces and registering the responses, right? Um, per- perfect uh, for the medium of cinema to register that. Uh, in the way it does, and with the music, which works powerfully on us as viewers in this scene as well. So, here you have a a conception of marriage that's certainly very different from the ice storm, right? It's sort of at the opposite pole of the ice storm, uh, the conception of love and marriage. And it's also different, in a sense, from the comedy of remarriage, although it's probably closer to that in some ways. Uh, But it's different because the focus is there. uh, The focus in, in the particular decision that Arwen makes is intimately connected with the desire to have children and to have children with this person. Right? I think it's striking that it isn't just the child running across her path and looking at her, but it's the child running into Aragorn's arms and then looking at her. Right? So it's as if their union. Uh, if, if I recall correctly, even as this goes on, they never look at each other in the scene. They look at the child who looks at the two of them, right? Which which is a, a visual way of deepening the decision that she articulates. Um, I was really curious about what you said about Seinfeld, like, expanding what was funny and, like, what you think, like, acceptably laugh at. Yeah. And I can talk about this for 45 minutes. But you all will think less of me at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about um,
0: like Quentin Tarantino and the Coen Brothers at directors. So like Tarantino is like really famous for like this this like extravagant violence. Yes. And it's, it's funny kind of like. Yeah. Uh, but you feel
1: really weird it's like... It turns different. it... Yeah,
0: I mean... And um, it's weird. And then uh, there's also like this sense of like justice being
1: done especially in like his like later movies like jingo and like up to up to um, the most recent one yeah which is a and, great uh, one i think
0: and Boucher, too, yeah was, like, of justice being done and in this violence but then like with the cohen brothers it feels so arbitrary in a lot of ways like uh, but it's still sort of
1: funny. But the, the violence just, like, happening... Okay, there are no there, other questions. So, like, just this uh, one. So there's, like, this, like, violence happening for, like, no
0: reason to, like, people who, like, are just there. Like, they're not, they're, like, bystanders, even, or, like... um yeah. or, or people who are, who are, like, innocent characters, too. But it's still,
1: like, funny and like, a, in a really, like, weird yeah. way. And,
0: um... Yeah, like, like do you think that... I don't even
1: know what my question is, but well be, like, let me take team let team me leave team the, the Cohen brothers team aside for the moment I'm happy to talk about that I'm a, I'm a, a fan of a lot of their films um, um, let me talk about Tarantino and Seinfeld um, uh, because Jerry Seinfeld said at one point after watching uh, Pulp Fiction you know which begins and ends in a diner. <laughs> <laughs> with people saying stupid things. <laughs> Jerry said, that seemed like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> right? We're sitting in a diner talking about Arnold the pig, and, uh, uh, which they do, and we're talking about eating, whether you should eat pork or whether you eat dogs. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think the, um, um, one of the characters says, uh, well, you know, he talking about whether a, a dog's more charming than a pig. Says, well, have to be a lot more charming than that pig Arnold in Green Acres. Uh, so it's all about cu- getting internal. I'm really dating myself there talking about Green Acres. Uh, yeah, <laughs> 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 Thank you.
0: Um,
1: so, but on the uh, let me just say a couple things about this and then take another question but on the humor part uh, one thing on humor and one thing on violence. So on the humor part, yeah, I think what Seinfeld does is to Shift the humor to some extent so that we're laughing at and not just with. Now um, we're laughing at in part because we see these characters as, and they see one another as to some extent deserving the bad endings that occur. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, so you're laughing at uh, and uh, more at than with. Whereas I think the model of the classic sitcom is you're you're laughing with. Sometimes you're sort of laughing at, but you're still laughing with, if that makes sense. Right? You're kind of mocking, you're enjoying a person being mocked, but you're also sympathetic to them. You don't lose your sympathy for the main characters. Seinfeld's all about the characters not having sympathy for one another. And if you happen to have sympathy, it's disastrous for you. Right? There's a a show where Jerry actually develops emotions towards women he's dating, and it's disastrous. Right? It just, it almost destroys him. So, um... (laughs) On, um, on um, in Pulp Fiction with violence, yeah, I mean, Tarantino's the, the master of this. I think, um, I think in Pulp Fiction, there, we're actually supposed to believe there's a miracle that happens. And I think so when Jules at the end says that he can't, he can't do what he's been doing, right? Um, and, um, uh, and then he says, well, you're just going to be a bum man because you're not going to be a criminal anymore going to be a bum," He says, well, I'm going to wander the earth and let God tell me what he wants me to do next. Because something happened here. He says he puts it, God got involved when they're almost shot point blank and the bullets go around them. I think that actually the most sense you can make of that film is that a miracle actually happened. And the characters who who survive are all characters who leave that world. So it's Bruce Willis, right? And then it's, it's Samuel Jackson. They leave the world and they survive. Everybody else is dead. Um, so the, the last thing I'd say about, you know, these revenge movies, you know, so he takes out the slaveholders, then he takes out Hitler, and then he takes out the Manson family. <laughs> it's just wonderful, right? I mean, in the sense that it's a kind of wish fulfillment, right? Um, and, um, and it's better than the stuff he was doing before that, which was just this excessive celebration of cartoonish violence that is cartoonish, so you realize it's art but it's also sort of creepy and weird and destructive of the imagination, I think. So, um, so that's my take on... I really like Pulp Fiction, and I love um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it's a, it's a really beautiful film. Yes?
0: Do you think uh, that these films are holding up a mirror to society or are, our are culture, or are they shaping our society? Yeah. And as Catholics... Uh, what is our responsibility, mm. uh, going back to kind of maritime, right, in in exposing our psyche, psyches, our yeah. spirituality, yeah. our our religious sensibilities to these sorts of films, when we kind of parse out yeah. what we should be imbibing? Yeah. I mean, I know as as uh, I enjoy all manner of film as a yeah. cultural creative and as somebody who's a cultural yeah. uh, somebody. Just Cultural creative and and the crit, cr- critic and but as I get deeper into my faith I also mm-hmm. want to parse out that yep.
1: I'm not absolutely you know, uh, so two you've you've asked
0: junk in my,
1: you've asked really two questions right. and, and I had uh, a comment at the outset that I missed that I have written down um does it reflect or shape exactly the words you used
0: yeah
1: um, and then the second question is about judgments that we make about what we ought to watch and ought not to watch, what's acceptable and what's not. Really important question. So the first thing is that, you know, whenever anybody complains about a Hollywood movie, they say, we're just reflecting what's out there, right? Well, of course, every other waking moment, they're thinking about themselves as these absolute creative geniuses who are doing much more than just reflecting what's out there, right? Having deeper insights and shaping so there's an awful lot of shaping. And I think, you know, on the big social and cultural issues of the last 30 years, I think Hollywood has had a huge impact in moving people from thinking certain things are unacceptable to thinking they're acceptable. There's no question about that. I think what um, what Hollywood products or art, art that's attempting to mediate between high and low at all or is just low, what's going on if they're creative at all, is they're taking something that's latent just beneath the surface and making it explicit and then drawing out its implications. Seinfeld does this, right? So what if we lost the framework of the old sitcom and of the view of marriage and love? What would things look like? This is what you get, right? Um, So, uh, but I think Hollywood can, and this will lead into your second question, Hollywood can teach even where it doesn't fully recognize the implications of what it's doing. So I think sometimes Hollywood gives us stuff that's nihilistic, and if you trace back the roots, you can see the causal roots, like with the ice storm, in the sexual revolution. I don't know if that's... I mean, I think probably Rick Moody, or the novel, had something like that in mind. I don't know that the filmmakers had that in mind. But I think you can see that, right, uh, in certain kinds of films. Um, the other question is the question about um, what we ought to watch and what we ought not to watch. And um, I think there are some things uh, that in terms of explicit sexuality and violence that no one should really watch. And that I felt like sometimes as a movie reviewer, I was watching only I should go out and say, this is awful, don't watch it. Um, uh, and, And particularly... I mean, David O'Connor, my friend David O'Connor at Notre Dame, who I first got this Lord of the Rings clip from, he used it in a talk that he had given, uh, writes a lot about these things. And, you know, what he says is, you know, experience, violence is an intensifier of experience. Sex is an intensifier of experience. Right? Filmmakers can very easily try to dominate our imagination just by intensifying our experience in one or the other way, or even worse, both at the same time. Sexualized violence... Or violent sexuality. And an awful lot of the violence has a sexualized character to it. Right? I think that's true in the sort of kill Bill period of Tarantino. And I think that stuff is that's bad. It's there's something really toxic about that. Uh, and the the way in which the explicitness of both overwhelms and dominates rather than inviting the imagination. Right? This is one of the great dangers of film. In contrast to writing, it can, you can do that in writing, too. There can be pornographic writing and excessively violent descriptions in writing. But it's, it's much more dangerous with images because they're, they're, they, the intensification experience is much greater. right? So I think with that stuff, there's just a bunch of stuff that probably nobody should watch. When you talk about, well, what about this? What about that? You might think some of the things I just mentioned fall into that category. And Hibbs, you shouldn't be watching those. And I'm open to that discussion. I also think that, it, that with a lot of this stuff, there are prudential judgments that need to be made individual to individual and age to age. Lots of the stuff should not be anywhere near younger people, right? Because their imaginations and their passions are just being formed. And the real problem with violence and sexuality, and particularly violence in video games, that young men, in particular, and in certain strain of horror films that where the whole target audience is, is men between the age of 14 and 26. Right? Um, the real problem there is not that, that they're likely to go out and imitate what they're seeing. This does happen on occasion, but let's be honest, an awful lot has to have gone wrong in a young male soul for them to watch a Tarantino movie and think, I'm going to go do that at the mall. Right? I mean, there's something out, there's a lot of other stuff that's going wrong. There's there's no mechanical force there that just watching the images, but it can play a contributing role in souls that are already kind of messed up. Right? The real danger is the atrophying of the moral moral imagination of the young, right? Who become jaded and violent in other ways. Right? Just daily interaction. Ordinary interaction, they become violent and cynical and lack hope. Right, that's the real danger. Because Hollywood's happy, particularly the toxic part, they're happy to march in and set up camp in the souls and imaginations of young people, particularly young men.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned that the point of romantic comedy is to get two characters together at the end. Yeah. So what can you say about, and I know this has kind of happened over the last few years, the rise of the anti-romantic comedy? In my mind, I'm Characters jump in together when they're built up as, like, okay, this is good. they're going to be a match.
1: Right. Like, where does that have a place in sort of our society? What does that say? Is it of nihilism or is it just is it something else? Yeah, I really had a hard time sitting through La La La, and I have to confess. I mean, this is a big cultural division point, so I'm just going to say that's where I am on this. Um, just come right out. Get it out in front. Um, yeah, So, um, so I think that's a. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there are antecedents of, of that in the classical period. I can't think of any. That. that doesn't even work because uh, as soon as I say this has never been, somebody will say, "What about it?" <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I think that's a that's a, a kind of uh, it depends how it goes, right? Because it can just be a rec- it, it could be a variant on the Seinfeld thing, right? It's a recognition that as as Jerry says at one point, you know, when Elaine said, "Well, why?" Why is it that nobody can get together? And, and Jerry says, God doesn't want us to get together. Like right? some sense of a... And there is a kind of anti-providence opportunity, right? Where, uh, as George says at one point, God would never let me enjoy my success. Okay? So i thought we didn't believe in God, and he says, for the bad things. <laughs> so it could be that there's something like that where there's a sort of recognition of... It also can be that they bark and they're friends and so there's some affirmation of another type of human connection that's not just about romance so well what does that mean you have to look at the particular but i think it 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 could be either or both of those right a recognition or an insistence that we're really not meant to get together and romantic comedies are just fantasies like our our uh, female lead in the i confess film is suffering from right and then when you have to face reality You guys are really not meant to be with this person. But it could also be if they remain friends, right, uh, that there's some other type of human connection that's being affirmed. That could be seen to be alongside romance or something more important than romance. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of follow up on that, does the, um, I've heard this sentiment a lot growing
0: up uh, of like, well, you know, the Disney movie. Yeah, is that kind of an outgrowth, or are these kinds of movies that are coming up now an outgrowth of that sentiment?
1: Well, I think they. I'd have to. We'd have to look at each of them. I think that's right. I mean, I think Seinfeld certainly like that. The old sitcom had become, you know, uh, by the Brady Bunch, it had become pretty kind of cloying and and uh, and uncomfortable in lots of ways, right? So they're they're sort of it's just refreshing to see somebody say that's not.